Why don't you go ahead and turn to Romans 4. Going to continue our verse-by-verse study through the book of Romans. And uh, if you guys have been with us, you know that I've been taking the time in the beginning just to kind of um, make sure we understand uh, the definition of some words that we see used a lot in this book. I mean, really throughout the Bible, but that um, we don't use a lot in our normal lives. So they have a specific meaning that's important to understand the the truth of God's word. So I want to make sure we understand that. So today I wanted to talk about the word righteousness. Anyone want to take a guess or maybe you know, what what, what is the idea of righteousness in the Bible? Huh? Right standing with who? That's right. Because at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter if we're right standing in man's eyes. It's, it matters in God. And if you're in God, then you will be right standing whether people think it or not. But that's important. It's, it's the quality of being morally right or justifiable. And when I think of righteousness, like in terms of, you know, the world, um, we have in our society, we have law that governs what's considered right and what's wrong. And as long as I follow that law, then I'm going to be considered righteous. Or as long as I obey the law, I'll, I'll be considered right with it. But if I disobey it and I'm found guilty of doing wrong according to law, then I'm going to, in a sense, lose my righteousness or uh, no longer be considered right according to it. So in the context of God's word, righteousness speaks of being right before God according to his law or what he says is right and wrong. And in today's text, um, as I mentioned, you're going to see Paul use that word and talk a lot about right the righteousness that God gives us because it's impossible for us to achieve it um, or righteousness with God by our own actions, no matter how hard we try, because righteousness, the idea is that you're perfect. You've never disobeyed anything. And as we've talked about over the last uh, couple weeks, you can't live perfectly according to God's law. Therefore, you can't achieve righteousness in your own doing. And as such, the gospel is not about earning or deserving anything from God, but rather the good news is about us believing in receiving what God has offered us freely through faith in his son. So last week, we saw Paul finish establishing that all humanity is guilty of sin or disobeying God's word and that that sin, what that results in is us justly deserving God's wrath or his anger and his judgment. And that's the bad news that there's basically... We deserve that and that there's nothing we can do in our own power to rectify that or to somehow earn God's favor back in our lives. But the good news being that God chose to intervene on our behalf since we couldn't by creating a suitable, remember this word propitiation or providing a sacrifice that would satisfy or appease the judgment and wrath our sin deserved. And he did this by sending his son to live a sinless life on this earth so that he could redeem us by paying the just penalty our sins deserved and dying on the cross in our place so we could be justified of our sin and regain God's favor in our lives. This gift of being saved from our sin, allowing us to be righteous before God apart from the law and is offered freely to anyone and everyone through faith in Jesus. That's, that's a whole lot, but that's what we went through last week. And this gospel that Paul's sharing, or this good news that I just kind of summed up, um, which stated that salvation uh, 
with God is not by our own doing, but rather received through faith. That would have been heretical to quite a few people that are reading this, especially the Jewish people who lived under the impression that what made them right with God was following his law. The more they followed it, the more they'd be right with God. That was kind of how they lived their lives. And so after stating the theology of the good news in chapter three, Paul's now going to go the route of explaining how historically this was always God's plan from the very beginning. It was never his plan for us to, in a sense, try to make ourselves right with him, but rather to show us that we can never be right with him so that we knew we needed to be saved and we'd recognize the Savior when he came. All the way back at the beginning of the Old Testament, that was his plan. And so that's where we're going to see Paul go today and, and explain. So let me pray one more time, and then we'll start going through Romans 4. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord God, again, we just pray for understanding of your word. Lord, this is stuff that we've probably heard to some degree, depending how long we've been Christians, how much we've been in your word. But we all have this tendency to... Uh, not truly understand the grace that's been given to us in that somehow we still think we need to earn our way into your good graces or we need to earn your favor or it's depend or your promises are dependent on what we do and what we don't do in our lives when the reality is when you say it's all by your grace through faith it really is and we fail to understand that if we, if we somehow think that we still need to or if somehow our actions still make us somehow more right in your eyes. We, we never really grasp that magnitude of what's been done for us, what your grace really means. And we don't want to miss out on that because it, it shows how much you very much love us, the mercy that you've shown us in that despite ourselves, you still want to show us favor, that you still love us. And so we want to understand this to the fullest degree, Lord. And I pray that you'd really be ministering through your Holy Spirit to us today any misunderstandings we have, even maybe us not being aware of them, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. So verse one, it says, what then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. So if you guys remember last week, Paul ended Roman 3 with stating that the good news or specifically justification by faith in Jesus, Jesus making you faith in Jesus making you just as if you had no sin, in no way invalidated the law or made it irrelevant, but rather the gospel actually fulfilled it. And so he starts Romans 4 with talking about Abraham from the Old Testament. Abraham was probably the most esteemed person in all of history by the Jewish people because he was considered the, the father of the Hebrew race. And many of the rabbis in that day would teach that Abraham was righteous because he followed the law so perfectly. Like he, he just was this super you Christian, if you will, or super, not Christian, they didn't use that term back then, but super righteous person that, you know, that, that's what made him righteous with God because of all the good things he did and how he kept the law so perfectly. But Paul says, even if Abraham was son, somehow able to justify himself by our works, even if he was a super good person, he still would have no reason to boast about himself before God, as it says in verse two. Because if you guys remember, back in Romans 3.23, 
What did Paul say the standard was that we need to compare ourselves to when we're looking at how good we are? You guys remember? God, right? He says, if you're comparing yourself to the glory of God, that's the standard, all right? And so even if he was a super righteous guy, he'd have nothing to boast about, nothing to brag about compared to God's righteousness, all right? And as such, no matter how good a person might be, everybody will inevitably fall short and have no reason to brag in their own works. And in addition to that, God's word or the Old Testament does not tell us that Abraham was declared righteous by God because of his works, but rather in Genesis 15, 6, which Paul quotes here in verse 3, it says, in Abram, that was Abraham's name before God changed it, in Abram, believed the Lord, and the Lord counted him as righteous because of his faith. All right? It wasn't because of his works. Abraham's righteousness before God came through his faith in God and what God had told him, that he believed those things. Remember, we talked about how for those Old Testament saints, they believed in the coming Savior. They believed that God was going to save them from their sin. And God counted that as righteousness until that was actually fulfilled when Jesus came on the scene. And I want you to note that it specifically says that God counted or declared him as righteous because of his faith because it does not say that God made Abraham perfectly righteous. It says he considered him righteous. And there's a difference because likewise with the righteousness that we receive through faith in Jesus, God counts or has declared or considers you to be righteous in his eyes. But how many of you understand that you're far from that practically, right? Is there anyone here that thinks you're perfectly right in the way you act? No, hopefully not. And it's important to understand this because once we're declared righteous by God, all right, we're, we're still a work in progress, but God through his Holy Spirit puts his spirit inside of us to begin that process of making us right practically or helping us do what his word says until the day that we're with Jesus Christ in which we will be like him according to 1 John 3, 2, all right? But that's a work in prog progress. Your whole entire life, spent between now and when you're with Jesus again, either you go to him or he comes back, is this work he's doing in you to, as Romans 8, 29 says, conform you to the image of his son. He's making you like Jesus. And there's two reasons why it's important to understand this. The first is that it'll keep you from having unrealistic expectations of yourself, which will help you respond to God correctly when you sin. And it will also help you keep from having unrealistic expectations of other Christians or other people, which will help you respond correctly when you get wronged by other believers or other people that sin against you. And that's a real important one because that, that, it's important to understand that in every single relationship you have in your life, the struggles in our marriage often start with us having unrealistic expectations of each other, all right? And I'm not saying that we don't need to work on things. I guess what I'm not saying at all is that I'm not justifying sin. I'm not saying sin is ever an okay or an acceptable thing. God has saved us from our sin because of the damage it causes. And in the power of his Holy Spirit, we've been freed from the bondage of it. So we have the power to walk in the newness of life, as the Bible calls, or according to his word, where we have the power to do what his word says. 
with his help. And why do we want to do that? Because he says that blessing or happiness will come with obeying him. So we should absolutely want that. That's the goal. But it should be of no surprise when we sin against the Lord and others or when other brothers and sisters fall short and sin against us or others, even after we're saved, knowing that we're all very much works in progress. But like children, how many of you guys' children just get it when you tell them what to do? How many of them have to learn over time to listen to you because you're trying to help them understand what's good for them? But it's a process, right? And it's the same thing with us, with God, our Father in heaven. It's a process where we're learning to trust him and obey because he knows better than us. But like our kids, like us, we can be really stubborn and have to learn the hard way or it takes time. It takes repeated effort, you know, the same lesson being taught over and over again until we finally get it. But here's the thing I want you to get out of this is that God has already declared you to be righteous. Since Jesus already paid the price of your past, present, and future sins, and as such, your actions have no bearing on your righteousness before God. So when we are guilty of sin, we can have absolute confidence of knowing or in knowing that we're forgiven of it and we can come clean and confess it to God. There's nothing to hide from him. You're not hiding it from him anyways, but it didn't shock him because Jesus already paid for that sin in advance and he still calls you righteous. And knowing that allows you to do what it says in 1 John 1, 9, where it says, but if we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from wickedness. Or confession leads to cleansing or God being able to help us with our sins. See, when we understand that, yeah, you didn't shock God, that you dropped the ball, that you yelled at your kids or that you, you went back to this sin that you thought you were over and you slipped up, you didn't surprise him. Now, he still wants to save you from that. He's freed you from the bondage of your flesh where you can say no to it, but you can be open and honest with him and know that you're still right in his eyes. He still wants to show you favor. He still wants to help you. He's not disappointed in you. And you can go to him openly, at which point he will help you. But if you try to hide from him, it creates this awkwardness where you're not even looking for his help. You're trying to hide something that you're not hiding and it prevents him from doing that work he wants to do inside of you and help you overcome that. And when others sin against us, we can show grace in understanding that, guess what? God's still working on them just like us, while at the same time lovingly help them understand truth, help them understand their sin, help them in overcoming it, help them go to God to help them with it. Amen? It's important to understand these things. It goes on in verse four and it says, now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. So Paul here pointing out that the principle of grace and the principle of works are not the same. They conflict with each other. Grace is receiving something that has been freely given as a gift to us and completely opposite of expecting some type of wage or reward for our efforts, which is what works is. So let's say Abraham was declared righteous because when God told him to leave his hometown of Ur, he obeyed. Or let's say he declared him righteous because when he told him to go sacrifice his son, Isaac, he was willing to do it then his salvation would have been given to him as a reward rather than a gift. And in a sense, God would have been paying off a debt that Abraham had earned. 
so too with us, if we're ever thinking that, oh yeah, God owes me, or I've been really good Christian this week, I've been going to church, I've been reading my Bible, I've been hanging out with other believers, so good things, he owes good things in my life. That's just not the case. We're implying that God owes us something because of our good behavior, which God makes clear that he's not gonna be a debtor to anyone. As we saw in Romans 3, we're not even capable of good behavior apart from God helping us. So that good behavior in you isn't you. It's the Holy Spirit helping you do it. So how do you deserve credit for that? And the reality is Romans 1, 2, and 3, make sure that you understand that I understand the only thing I deserve is God's wrath and judgment for my bad things. So anything I get that's not that is actually an act of his love and grace. And I'm not trying to be hard, but that's the reality. And that understand, that gives you the mag, that gives you the ability to understand when you understand God doesn't owe you anything and you see what he's done for you and what he continues to do for you and his goodness in your life, you understand how awesome he really is. And the problem with me thinking that God owes me something is always gonna prevent me from understanding and valuing his grace the way I should. God wanting to bless you in your life has nothing to do with your actions and everything to do with his love for you and his goodness. And we won't have confidence in his promises if we think they're dependent on our actions in some way rather than by his grace. Because the thing is, we're never gonna be perfect. And if we're always worried about, oh, I dropped the ball, now this means karma, like God's gonna be bad to me. You're always gonna be worrying that. But if you understand it was never dependent on you in the first place, it's received as a gift through faith in Jesus, you never have to wonder. God wants to be good. God loves you. God has promised to show you grace upon grace, favor upon favor. And understanding that will give you the desire to want to live with him and for him as a response, as I prayed earlier, instead of feeling like it's a responsibility, which is not good. That's not the way you want to be living. And he goes on in verse five and it says, and to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. So whereas the person who tries to work their way to God will never achieve righteousness with God. The person who believes in Jesus or him who justifies the ungodly, as verse five says, will be declared righteous by God. It not being the person that thinks they are godly that is right with God, but rather the person who understands that they are in fact ungodly and can only be saved by God's grace. Grace. Those are the ones that will be justified. Our faith in God and his good news about Jesus resulting in us being counted as righteousness as verse five says, justice with Abraham. Basically through your faith in Jesus, God has declared and what God declares is true. And he said, you are righteous. Alex is righteous. Matt is righteous. Kiri is righteous. Thus decrees the Lord and that's all that matters. And Paul showing us here that there's never been two ways to be saved. Some people, like the Jews, would think that, oh no, the Old Testament is all about the law and how you have to follow the law to be right with God. And now the New Testament teaches us that through faith in Jesus, you can be right. No, no, no. From the very beginning, it's always been by God's grace through faith. 
the law just shows us that it's impossible to do it ourselves and that we needed the Savior the New Testament ta talked about. That's how it fulfills, the gospel fulfills the Old Testament. And Paul now goes on to give us a second example of another person that the Hebrews admired from the Old Testament that understood this principle. Verse 6, it says, Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart, uh, apart from works, Verse 7, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. So this is a psalm, Psalm 32, 1 through 2, that David wrote, that Paul's quoting, in which David made clear that he understood that he was a sinner and had personally experienced the blessing of knowing that he was forgiven of those sins and right with God through faith in him apart from works as verse six says, all right? And it's interesting that if you guys are people that have read the Psalms before, maybe you've noticed this, but if you look at the early Psalms, a lot of the Psalms being written by David, if you look at the early Psalms, there's a great focus by David on his innocence before other people that were wrongly persecuting him, all right? And I'm not saying they weren't, they were wrongly persecuting, persecuting him, but there's this great focus on the fact that I don't have an iniquity or I'm, I'm not guilty of sin against them. I'm right before them. And then it changes. If you look at the later Psalms, there's this greater focus on that I'm a sinner and I'm still forgiven and I'm so thankful for that. And there's just appears to be a shift in his focus. And I speculate, because you don't know this for sure, but I speculate that that's because he had some grave sin in his life at that point. If you guys know the history of David, you know that he had this adulterous relationship with Bathsheba and it led to uh, basically him murdering her husband. And it's almost as if all of a sudden David realized, I'm not as good as I thought I was. Quite the opposite. And upon discovering this about himself, it made him rejoice, not in the th right things he did, but in God and his grace that he loved him and saved him or forgived him of it for was forgiving him of his sin despite him making these grave mistakes. So too with me, it seems like anytime I feel that somehow I've arrived or I'm doing pretty good in my walk, that's when the Lord really likes to slap me upside the head and show me you're not as good as you think you are. I remember when uh, we had our first kid how many of you guys did the Lord use children to reveal some ugly things inside of you? I remember walking around with that baby and just annoyed that he would have the audacity to wake me up in the middle of the night and keep me up and not go to sleep. And I just remember the Lord really doing this heart check. It's like, really? It's like, man, you're selfish. You need help with this. This is an innocent little helpless baby and you want your sleep instead of taking care of him, your son. And it was a real eye opener for me. But those are good because that, that, those are things I don't want. I don't want to live in them being that miserable because of my selfishness. I want to be freed from that. But that's what the Lord does with us. And because of this reality, if we're trying to prove that we're worthy of God's blessing or we're trying to earn it in some way, because of the fact you're always, it's always going to be revealed to you that you're not perfect, that you don't deserve it, you're never going to be happy. You're never going to be happy if it's off of what you think you're earning to God. Because on this side of the 
a heaven, your actions are never going to prove you're worthy of any of God's favor. But as it says here, blessed will be the one who realizes that their sins are forgiven through their faith in Jesus and that they still are right with God despite their imperfections because of the finished work on the cross. Happiness is never going to come from trying to work your way to God, but simply by just believing him at his word. Amen? So Paul, he's given us two examples of Jewish men and God's word that were clearly shown to be justified apart from works. But what about the Gentiles? Now he's going to go on to talk about, is salvation available to them the same way? So he goes on to say in verse 9, is this blessing referring to verse 7 or the forgiveness of sins, then only for the circumcised, which would be the Jew, or also for the uncircumcised, which would be the Gentile. For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised, he received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The, the purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well and to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. So Paul points out in verse nine that if the blessing of salvation is received through faith rather than being dependent on circumcision or any other work for that matter, then it must be available not only to the Jew, but also to the uncircumcised or the Gentile, which is everyone else. That's all of us, okay? And then Paul reminds the reader of the order in which Abraham was saved. As God declared Abraham righteous through his faith in God and his word in Genesis 15, 6, but he did not receive the direction from God to be circumcised until Genesis 17, which was at least 14 years later. So him being made right with God was most certainly not dependent on him obeying God's command to be circumcised, but rather circumcision was an outward sign given to Abraham by God to display the inward change that had already occurred through faith in God, as verse 11 says. Circumcision, circumcision never being meant to confer righteousness, but rather only to confirm it. So to say that someone had to be circumcised before they could truly be right with God, as a lot of the Jews would say in Paul's day, was simply not true because that wasn't the case. That's not what God's word taught. The Jews thinking that circumcision in itself was the proof that they were Abraham's descendants or that they were a part of God's family. But Paul points out in verse 12, to truly be a follower of God as Abraham was, you must have faith in God as Abraham did, which everyone has the opportunity to, circumcision being inconsequential, which means everyone can be a descendant of Abraham or a part of God's family, not just the Jew, okay? And then he goes on in verse 13, and he says, for the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be heirs, faith is null and the promise is void for the law brings wrath. But where there is no law, there is no transgression. So since all of God's promises to Abraham and his offspring, Isaac and Jacob were made before the law was given to Moses, you can't say that those promises were dependent on the law, but rather received through faith, as Paul says in verse 13. And, and if keeping the law was required to read, 
receive God's promises or basically his promises were conditional on following his commandments, then they would be void, as verse 14 says, or there'd be no way he could keep them to us as it's impossible for anyone to follow that law perfectly. Trying to follow the law only ends in one way, and that is deserving God's wrath for breaking it, as verse 15 says. So the only way to avoid the inevitable consequence of breaking God's law is for God to offer us a righteousness that is apart or not dependent on keeping the law. And this word here, transgression, in verse 15, carries the idea of crossing a line. Because Paul's saying that if there is no law or no line to cross, there can't be an actual transgression against God. So in offering to declare us righteous through faith in Jesus, who took the penalty that our transgressions deserved upon himself, God removed the law or the line that was a barrier for us to be right with him. And praise the Lord, he did that because that's what allows us to be saved. And he goes on in verse 16 and it says, that is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. So Paul here, he's, try, he's, he's tying faith and grace together as they're related, just as the works and the law are related, grace and, and law being principles in God's word and faith and works faith and works being the means by which we pursue a relationship with God through those different principles. Paul's saying here that our salvation is by God's grace, which by definition means you can't earn it. You don't do anything to deserve it. You don't merit it in any way. And it's received through our faith in him and what he has told us about Jesus. And this is the only way one can be forgiven of their sins and saved. All right. And this is also the only way God's promises could be guaranteed to you as verse 16 says, or the only way that you could have absolute confidence in your salvation and everything that God says is for you because you're saved. You couldn't have confidence it was dependent on you, but because it's not, you can have absolute confidence that if God says it, it's absolutely true. How many of you guys played shoots and ladders when you were growing up? Not that many. The young people are like, what the heck is that? Uh, so if I'm remembering this game right, I, I was trying to pick out a, a, a game that seemed applicable to this, but that, if I remember right, you'd spin the spinner, land on a number, and that number, like, like a lot of board games, you'd go those spots. And if you landed on a good deed, you would go up a ladder, right? You'd move forward in the game. And if you landed on a bad deed, you'd go down a chute, and you'd go backwards, okay? And so it would be cool when you were getting towards the end, you were in like the front, like you're ready to go. And then all of a sudden you land on a bad deed and it just, you fall back and you, you got to start all over basically. And, and it was super frustrating, right? To like be the one that you're like, oh, I'm almost there. I'm going to win the game. And then all of a sudden you like land on a bad deed and you have to start all over again. And I just couldn't help but think like in very much the same way, if you're living for God, if we're living for God's favor, if we're living for to be right in his eyes based off of our actions, our game is like a horrible, or our life is like a horrible perpetual game of shoots and ladders, right? Oh, cool. Read my Bible today. Get to move up one spot. Oh, I got to tell someone the gospel today, man. I get like 10 spots. I'm almost there. Oops, lost my temper with my kid. Now I'm all the way back to the beginning again. That's our life. If we're trying to live it that way. And the thing is, man, 
that is not the way God wants us to live. Because of our salvation is by God's grace and we received it through faith, we can be confident that what God declares to us is true. There's nothing you can do to change it or lose it by your actions because it was never dependent on them. Amen? That's so important to understand. And the fact that uh, salvation is by God's grace and received through faith also means that it's truly available to anyone and everyone, Jews and Gentiles alike, which truly fulfills the promise of God to Abraham, as we're going to see in the following verses, that he didn't just want to save the Jews, but as he says in verse 16, he wanted anyone from all nations through faith in his son Jesus to be saved. It says in verse 17, as it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope, he believed against hope, or the idea is when there appeared to be no reason to be hopeful, he still hoped that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring, offspring be. So, I want you to notice in verse 17, when Paul quotes Genesis 17, 5, he's speaking in the past tense when he told Abraham, you're going to be the father of many nations, right? He speaks as if it's already happened, or even though it hadn't happened, he speaks of the promise he was making him as if it already had. And God can speak this way for two reasons, because number one, he's omniscient, which means he knows everything. So he knows what's going to happen in your life. You got to understand this. When God's speaking to you and he's speaking promises, he doesn't just see you as you are. He sees you as you're going to be because time doesn't exist with him. And then he's also all powerful or he's um, um, omnipotent, which means that he can ensure what he says actually happens. So God's the only one that can say something as if it's already happened and make sure that it actually will because he knows it will. All right. And as such, it says here that Abraham believed God at his word or was able to have a hope or sure expectation of coming good despite being in a circumstance that appeared hopeless. Because if you guys remember, they didn't have kids. They wanted kids, right? They wanted an offspring of his own, him and his wife, Sarah. And that didn't happen until he was like 100. And so he had all these years where he's, God's promised him early on in his life, I'm going to bring multitudes from you, like nation after nation. And he's not seen anything. But it says, because God said it and he believed God could do it, he had a sure expectation of coming good. And that is the key for us. Because some of you right now are going through something really hard, or if you're not, you will be. And at that point, God's made a promise to you that he's working all things for your good. And that promise isn't based you receiving that promise isn't based off of whether you dropped the ball yesterday or today. It was received through faith in Jesus. And even if you don't see that good yet, just like Abraham, you might have to wait 80 years, but you will see the good that comes from it, even if it is something bad. And you can have that sure expectation good. Doesn't mean it's not hard to go through hard things. But the, prom the thing is, God gives us peace and joy that runs concurrent to our difficulty in this life. Because at the same time as I'm going through something hard, I can still have this expectation, this hope that, you know what? This sucks. This is hard. It's because I live in a fallen, sinful world. But guess what? I am the Lord's and he has said he's going to use this for my good and I will see that one day. And that's what keeps you going. That's the hope that Abraham had that kept him going. And eventually he got to see the promise come to pass miraculously or 
God call into existence the things that do not exist, as Paul says in verse 17, as he gave life to Sarah's womb and gave her and Abraham a son in their old age. And then Abraham, it says, he believed God's promise that he would be a father of many nations through his offspring, as Paul says in verse 18, and that God was able to bring life to the dead, as verse 17 says, and being willing to sacrifice that son. If you guys remember this, when he, God said, take him up to Mount Moriah, I want him to be a sacrifice. Ben, this was the person, his offspring, that like this great nation was supposed to come from. And he believed God that, well, if God's telling me to do it, he's going to do something. I can believe him. And he trusted God. Now, he didn't have to kill his son. God was just testing him to see where his faith was at for his own good. But he, God provided a ram, so he didn't have to do that. But all that to say is he believed God at his word because he'd already seen him give him a son, despite what made sense to him. And God is able, we have to remember God is able to do anything he wants. There is no limitation. So whatever that hard thing is you're going through in your life right now that you just can't see how it's gonna work out for good, you're right. In your work, in your understanding, it, it, it couldn't. But God has no limitation. And he's promised to work it for your good. Not that that thing is good, because there are bad things in this world, but he will work it for your good. If he can declare you as righteous, even though you're not practically yet, he can surely do whatever it is that you want him to do. So when God speaks his promises to us in his word, when he calls you justified, just as if you had no sin, past tense, when he calls you righteous, even though you're still a work in progress, when he calls you sanctified or glorified, like glory, like how we're gonna be when we're with him, he calls you these things in the past tense because guess what? He says in Philippians 1, 6 that he who began the good, and work, the good work in you will complete it. He doesn't see you just as you are. He sees you as you're going to be. And he, of all people, the only person that can actually say it and mean it because he will make sure it happens. And if God is confident in you, you better be confident in yourself. Or confident in him is a better way to put it. Because you can bank on anything he says. And family, that gives us the greatest confidence in knowing that. Here's the thing. God's never disappointed with you or sees you as a failure. We search a lot for that in our lives, right? We grow up. Some of us, we don't find that with our parents. We don't find that in our jobs. We're, we're looking for somebody to, to like acknowledge us to some degree. God's happy with you all the time. Because he sees what you're going to be and he's going to ensure that that happens. And that is perfect. And as such, you can have complete confidence that your father in heaven views you as his perfect child, no matter what is going on, if you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ. Amen? That's the greatest confidence you could ever be given. A solid identity. This world would try to, the enemy in this world would try to fool you into finding your identity in the things that aren't solid. But God says, no, know who you are through faith in my son. That's your identity because I said it and nothing can change that. Amen. So as the worship team comes up here, I just want to close because again, this is so important to grasp this, this idea of that we've been saved and God is continuing to save us. He's gonna keep saving us right from this life into the next life. And it's all him doing it. 
not you. It's by his grace. It's because he wants to show you his favor because of his love, because he so loved the world as we read last week, because of his love for you. And it's all received as a gift through Jesus and the finished work on the cross. And as parents, you can probably relate to this analogy. Like though, I always like to think of it in terms of like a parent child, because that's what it says. God's our father in heaven. We've been given a relationship with the creator of the universe where he's our parent and we can approach him that way, all right? But my boys, hopefully they know that no matter what they do, I'm always going to love them. I'm always, in anything I do for them, it's always gonna be with their best interests in mind. They never have to earn that from me. They never have to do anything to deserve that or merit that. I mean, of course I get disappointed, like I'm imperfect, but I get disappointed when they don't listen to me because quite frankly, if they want to experience blessing in their life, it's going to come from what I tell them to do. So they need to listen to me. But who's laughing? Was that Henry Oyen? What, what? <laughs> you listen to your parents too. <laughs> no, but despite that, even when they don't listen, I still love them. It doesn't change my love for them. It doesn't change that I still want the best for them. And to an even greater degree, that's God with you. He's always going to love you. As we're going to see in Romans 8, nothing can separate your love through your faith in Jesus Christ. And he always wants to show you favor. He always wants to show you his grace. As it says in John, grace upon grace, never ending grace. He wants to do good in your life. That never changes. It was never dependent on you. It never will be dependent on you. It's received as a gift through faith in Jesus. So you never have to doubt these things. And hopefully, like when my boys see that, I know that as I grew up and I saw my grand, I saw that I learned that the hard way, of course, some of us do. I, I, I came to this point, I remember in my 20s where I'm like, ah, my grandparents actually knew more than I thought they did. They actually did were telling me things that were in my best interest. And my attitude changed to wanting to respond to them, like their advice, the things they were telling me, instead of looking at it as like a responsibility, like I got to follow what my parents say. And that was, that, that's what happens with God. It shouldn't be a responsibility. It's a response out of seeing his love that he's displayed for you in his goodness in your life and what he's done for you in understanding that, man, I, I just, I want to be wherever Jesus is. I want to do whatever he says because that's where I'm, I'm happiest. And he's clearly shown me how much he loves me. And every time I listen, it amounts to good things. And he keeps being faithful. Even though I, I drop the ball, he never lets me down. He never lets me get away. He's always chasing after me. Maybe there's some of you specifically that you need to be, again, reminded of that today. Maybe you haven't been to church for a while. Maybe you've never been to church. And today you just need to be reminded that, man, God loves you so much. He sent his son to die on a cross in your place so that your sins could be paid for and you could be made righteous with him. Maybe you're a Christian that you haven't been living according to God's word lately and you feel condemned, you feel guilty, you've listened to the lie of the enemy that somehow your right standing with him is anything other than through faith in Jesus and God's just reminding you, 
like the prodigal son who remembered, man, it's so much better with the father. I just need to go back to him. And when he got back, he was like thinking his dad would be upset. And his dad was just there with open arms, ready to throw a party. He's like, no, this is where I want you all along. Just come back to me where you can be blessed. Whatever it is, this is an opportunity right now just to respond to God, to really meditate on the grace. And when I say that, the the goodness and the favor he shows us every day that he wants to keep showing us and that you can never do anything to, to, to get in the way of that if you placed your faith in Jesus and praise him for it, worship him for it. We'll have our prayer team around here. If you need prayer for anything, if you, if you want to receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior and you want help in praying, come up here and we'll lead you in a prayer. If you need to, if you're like that Christian that I'm talking about, it's just like, man, that was a word for me. I've just been kind of in the spot where I feel distance from God because I'm afraid of the sin in my life and I just want to come clean I know that I'm forgiven of it and I just want to rejoice in that and ask God to help me live in that new life. Come up. James 5 says, when you confess your sins to one another, your brothers and sisters, there's healing. Humility always allows God to come in and do what he wants to do. So when you humble yourself between your brothers and sisters who, like I said, they, they, nobody's gonna shame you. We all realize we have our own issues. And when we're honest, it allows God to really do the work he wants to do in us. Teach us to walk in that victory he's given us. But don't miss out on this opportunity to respond. Especially since I think they're still cooking, so yeah. All right, let's go ahead and worship. We'll have our prayer team around the room and just take this opportunity to worship God for for the grace he's bestowed upon us and then also respond to him as he's leading you. Oh Lord, we're just so thankful that you've given us access into the holy of holies, if you will, into that place of your presence Lord, through our faith in Jesus and what he did. Think of how the the veil of the temple that separated people from that that place where your presence was supposed to dwell, it was ripped from top to bottom because there was no need for it anymore because of Jesus. Because all who should believe on him and understand what he's done for them on the cross were forgiven. And we're right in your eyes, Lord. And that is because of you. You said it, you did it. And we can stand here today knowing that we're redeemed, we're justified just as if we had no sin. We're righteous, we're right in your eyes because of you, Jesus, and we're forever grateful. So Lord, may we rejoice in that truth as we fellowship around food that you've provided for us, which we thank you for, Lord, and this beautiful day that you've given us. Bless your people. Work through our 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 discussions with each other our prayers for each other lord just may your spirit work to edify and build each person here up in jesus name amen